0: And welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Elfray, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jeffrey Lipshaw, Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School. We will discuss his article, The False Dichotomy of Corporate Governance Platitudes, which will be published in the Journal of Corporation Law. So welcome back to the show, Jeff.
1: Thanks a lot, Brian. It's always a delight to talk to you.
0: <laughs> well likewise and especially about this paper which i thought was really fun to read really fascinating and 100% correct at least in my opinion although i understand there are other people who uh, might disagree with me and and you
1: yeah well you and you said that just like i wrote it for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, before we get into the meat of the paper i was hoping you could say a little bit about yourself and your background, because I think it really informs where the paper comes from and the perspective that sort of motivated you to write it and sort of framed how you address the particular theoretical problem that you're discussing in the paper.
1: Sure. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll do it by starting with what it was that I was reacting to, um, and then immediately to the segue of, wait a minute, um, that can't be right. Um, so almost uh, exactly a year ago, the Business Roundtable, and the Business Roundtable is simply uh, a, an organization um, uh, that you get into by being the CEO of a major corporation. Uh, and there are about 200 members And uh, the Business Roundtable had uh, a statement of principles, one of which included um, the statement that the purpose of a corporation was primarily to serve the shareholders. And about a year ago, the Business Roundtable issued a statement signed by the vast majority. I mean, I want to say like 180 out of 200 of those CEOs. Um, changing or amending the principles to remove the statement that the primary purpose of the corporation was to serve the shareholders, and instead saying that the corporation had a number of constituencies that were important and to which the corporation had to make commitments, including, besides the shareholders who were important, the employees, customers, suppliers, and communities. And immediately after that came out, the group that I would call the shareholder wealth maximization purists, um, and the primary one in academia being my friend Steve Painbridge at UCLA, but also the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page, um, were aghast um, I, I, the only thing I can think of is that they they viewed uh, essentially their fellow—I I don't mean it this way—but but fellow Republicans um, as somehow have somehow landing on the Elizabeth Warren or 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 Bernie Camp uh, contra- Bernie Sanders contribution list. Um, just how could you be saying that? Um, and. Now we get to my background. I have been a law professor uh, for the last fifteen years or so, but before that, I was a real lawyer for twenty-six years, part of which uh, I was um, a corporate officer, a senior corporate officer in the C-suite of what I would what I would characterize as a mid-cap New York Stock Exchange company. And so I come from a background that um, uh, was. Um, They're in the trenches of the C-suite and a major corporation, at least I thought we were major at the time I was there, um, and the the director's room. And my reaction was, this is a nothing burger. Um, Yeah, we always paid attention to the shareholders, but the idea that when you are running a corporation, that you focus on the shareholders to the exclusion of your employees, your community, your customers, your suppliers, was ludicrous. And that was the genesis of the paper. Um, And uh, I I guess the the last piece in terms of my own background is – that my joke over and over again is that I am the leading scholar in the world on the overlap of venture capital doctrine and Kantian philosophy. So um, uh, my reaction to the paper, or or, I'm sorry, to to this absolutist position about the upholding of the shareholder wealth maximization principle is on one hand, very pragmatic and empirical. And on the other hand, sort of deep and philosophical. And so the paper was a way of expressing both.
0: Well, so for listeners who might not be so familiar with corporate law theory, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the shareholder wealth maximization theory, sort of where it came from, what it says, and why people find it a powerful or useful tool for thinking about corporate governance.
1: Sure. Um, as the latter, I'm not quite sure why they find it powerful except to say that you know, to the extent that somebody has to be out there defending the shareholders, I guess that's what they view as their role. And again, I think that the the so the shareholder wealth maximization principle is purportedly a legal rule that says, that the primary fiduciary obligation of the board of directors in a corporation is to advance the interest of the shareholders. Not to advance the interest of communities, not to advance the interest necessarily of employees, not to advance the interest of customers or suppliers, but that the legal fiduciary obligation of the board, of the directors and of management Extends solely and exclusively to those who own the equity of the corporation. And there is at least a certain amount of theoretical power to the idea that those corporations that will succeed or are going to succeed are those that make their mark most effectively in the capital markets, and the buyers in the capital markets are the shareholders. And so If you have a legal fiduciary obligation to those shareholders as a director or as a corporate manager, you are going to be doing your utmost theoretically to advance essentially the generation of wealth and society, making the the world a better place to live. Again, that's the shareholder wealth maximization principle in terms of what I think is its normative Grounding. It's what you know. Why do they care? That's step number one. Step number two is that it was articulated first, now almost a hundred years ago, in a case that got wide publicity, involving Henry Ford and the Dodge brothers. And um, and it went like this: the short story. The Ford Motor Company was hugely successful in the 19 in the teens and early 20s and it turned out that a couple of the significant investors in the Ford Motor Company in addition to Henry Ford and other financiers were the two Dodge brothers who not coincidentally ended up leaving and forming the Dodge Company and the Dodge Motor Company Henry Ford was sort of a quirky character, and Henry Ford um, had a number of some more, um, what should we say, um, positive social goals and some more negative ones. But Henry Ford um, said, I don't want to issue dividends to my shareholders because I have a social purpose for this corporation. Um, And the social purpose is to employ as many people as I can, uh, essentially the $5 day. Um, And I just think it's more important to be furthering that social purpose than to be paying dividends to my shareholders. Well, the Dodge brothers wanted the dividends because they wanted to go out and form their own auto company. And so they sued Ford Motor Company. And the end result was a famous case from uh, the late 19-teens called Dodge versus Ford Motor Company, in which the Michigan Supreme Court said, well, you know, corporate managers ordinarily have a huge amount of leeway in how they run the corporation. But this is beyond the pale. And Henry Ford, you cannot run your corporation as an eleemosynary institution for the betterment of society and completely blow off your shareholders like the Dodge Brothers. And that was the holding. And it has now been cited um, for over 100 years as the instantiation of the shareholder wealth maximization principle right? If you want to say like the primary purpose of the corporation is to promote the interest of the Welsh, the, the, promote the interest of the shareholders, you cite to Dodge versus Ford Motor Company. So that is both the theory and the legal basis of uh, uh, the shareholder wealth maximization principle.
0: Well, so in the paper, you, you kind of set up two adversaries When it comes to kind of the theoretical conception of how we ought to think about corporate governance, one being Stephen Bainbridge, the other being Leo Strine. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who they are, how they respectively conceptualize the importance of shareholder wealth maximization in corporate governance and sort of where they're coming from and what you're responding to.
1: So, um, so Steve Bainbridge, who, by the way, is a friend, um, is um, at one end of the spectrum. Steve, uh, Steve will tell you that the law is the shareholder wealth maximization principle. Um, and Leo Strine is probably the most eminent corporate lawyer living today. And the reason is that he was the vice chancellor and then the chancellor of the Delaware Chancery Court, which is the premier corporate law court in the country. He was then the chief justice of the Delaware Supreme Court and probably has done more to articulate corporate law uh, over the last 15 or 20 years than any other individual. Um, and Leo's position is interesting. Leo. Leo, or uh, I should say Chief Justice Strine, actually believes that corporate purpose ought to be altered to be more inclusive of the interests of other stakeholders. But his position, again, is that the law of Delaware is the equivalent of what Steve Bainbridge holds it to be. My position has been both pragmatic and philosophical. The pragmatic position is, I don't care what you say about the law or what you say in these extreme cases in which literally a CEO has said, I'm blowing off the shareholders. Those aren't the typical cases, right? There are, there are maybe two or three of those that have actually made it to the appellate courts in the last hundred years. The way that the world really runs is that the corporation is a goose. And what you really want to be doing as management and a board of a corporation is making that goose as fat as you can. Right? That you want... You want to make it valuable. And when it's valuable, it's going to be valuable to customers. They're going to want a part of the surplus. It's going to be value to, valuable to employees. They're going to want more of the surplus in the form of higher wages. It's going to be valuable to suppliers who are going to want more of the surplus in the, in the form of higher prices. And it's going to be valuable to the shareholders who want to get more of the surplus in terms of profits. And so what you want to do is we'll worry about that fight of divvying it up later. Let's first make this thing really, really valuable. And one of the ways that you don't make it valuable is by saying, oh, by the way, shareholders, by the way, customers, we care more about shareholders than we do about you. Or by the way, employees, the way the, when it comes down, when it really comes down to it between you and the shareholders, we prefer the shareholders. No, what you do is you reach out and you make commitments to your customers. You reach out and you make commitments to your to your employees. You reach out and you make commitments to your communities, because honestly, I was a corporate officer in Indianapolis. It ain't easy to recruit to Indianapolis. Good people. And so you want the community to be a place where good employees come. So, again, it is this nuanced, it's this nuanced art of turning the dials on the various commitments and the various obligations that you have to different constituencies within the organization and outside of the organization to make it really, really valuable. And... Um, And so, um, so practically, practically um, to make a statement like the primary purpose of the corporation is to, is to serve the shareholder. What does that mean? As a practical matter, it only means that we won't blow you off and we are interested ultimately in increasing the wealth of our shareholders, but we do it by means of commitments to lots of different constituencies. That's my position.
0: Well, so by way of setting up your argument, maybe just even a little bit more, in your paper, you talk about how Bainbridge defends theoretically the shareholder wealth maximization theory. I wonder if you could kind of present a kind of clean version of his defense or kind of the best version of his defense, in your opinion, and sort of explain explain a little bit why you think it doesn't work. And in particular, I really liked your trolley problem analogy, and I wonder if you could talk about that.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm going to put aside. So, so a third of the paper deals with sort of the economic justification. I'm going to put that aside. I want to talk about the philosophical. I want to talk about the philosophical um, justification. Again, if you take what I just said about the way the world really works. I have called Steve has a hypothetical that he has marketed that he calls the Bainbridge hypothetical, and it 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 narrows down to basically this: a corporation is in a position where um, the interest of the shareholders says close a plant, the interest of the employees and the community say keep the plant open, and if it comes down to that narrow issue. The obligation under the law would be to favor the interest of the shareholders and close the plant. That's the Bainbridge hypothetical. I have called that the corporate trolley problem. And again, what's the trolley problem? Everybody knows the trolley problem. The trolley problem is that the trolley is rolling down the the tracks toward a switch. And um, on one end, on one side of the switch, there's one person who would be killed by the trolley. On the other side are six people who would be killed by the trolley. And the philosophical or moral ethics problem is, do you pull the switch? Do you pull the switch and kill one person rather than five people or, or not? And my point about the trolley problem is it's an interesting reduction of the world, the philosophical world, down to the kind of decision that God knows that you would never have to make, right? But it is an interesting thought experiment in ethics, you know, sort of like Sophie's Choice. Um, uh, and so, and it's helpful in, if you're a philosophy student or an ethics student or an ethics professor in honing your arguments, um, But as a practical matter, people don't usually find themselves at trolley junctions figuring out if they have to kill five people or one people. You know, there are a lot of other alternatives. And so the the Bainbridge hypothetical as a means of justifying that particular rule of law, it seems to me, is equally um, arid, equally pure. And equally as unconnected to the real world. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. But the number of times it's going to come up in the real world really diminishes its use as a justification for a rule in the doctrine. And the way that that plays out is if you actually look at corporate law cases, The trolley problem equivalent of those cases are essentially circumstances in which the companies have put themselves in a position, like Henry Ford, by saying what he said, in which there really are only two alternatives favor the shareholders or not. Whereas in most instances, the governing rule of law for a corporate board or for management is the business judgment rule, which is, if it bears any articulable relationship to the success of the corporation, we courts are not going to interfere with it. So if you think, board, that making a large contribution to the Boy Scouts of America or making a large contribution to the Detroit Institute of Arts somehow you can articulate that as furthering the interest of the corporation we are not going to interfere with it
0: mm. yeah i really like the analogy because what it drove home to me was you know, i've always thought of the, the 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 trolley problem as being interesting not because of the answer that you give but because it illuminates in a really deep way the tension between consequentialist and deontological kind of moral heuristics. And in the same way, it seemed to me the kind of using that analogy for talking about Bainbridge's example made me see it as sort of like illuminating the tension almost between Pareto optimality and caldar Hicks optimality, rather than anything really about fundamental about corporate governance per se. And you talk about that in the paper. I wonder if you could like reflect on that
1: a little bit. Well, and, and I actually, I actually, I'm going to recharacterize that just a slight amount. I think that the trolley problem, again, is an interesting venture into the noumena, right? It's an interesting venture off into pure thought. There is really very rarely a phenomenon um, in the real world that aligns with the trolley pro- problem. And, so, and I think that Steve's holding up of the shareholder wealth maximization principle is a similar elevation of the noumena rather than the phenomena of corporate law. And it goes to a thesis that I have about a number of areas of legal doctrine um, that I write in, corporate law, contracts, and so on which is that law professors view it as having a real corpus. It's all thought, right? Law is all thought. It's human-created rules and structures. And, and there becomes this, this pneumonology that is a pure doctrine, whether it's pure contract doctrine or pure corporate doctrine, that in phenomena doesn't cash out and so I think I think what Steve is doing is elevating the pure I want to say catechism or the pure Numina um, or the pure theory of corporate law and I have a fundamental skepticism as an empiricist whether that plays out in the the, the real world in the world of real phenomena.
0: Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how this plays out in the actual law because you have a long section in the paper talking about the actual jurisprudence around the supposed shareholder wealth maximization theory and how courts actually decide practical questions relating to corporate governance. Um, And and I wonder if you can kind of talk about how that plays out on the ground.
1: Sure. How it plays out on the ground is – um, as I've said as I've said before, the number of cases in which you can you can make the argument that a rule that says that I take the shareholder interest as primary to someone else's, you can count on the fingers of one hand. Right? Um, and to the ex- and my position is to the extent that you state the rule in those cases as the primary interest of the shareholders, is the primary interest of the board is to the shareholders. It's actually dicta because the actual narrow holding is something like this. When the CEO expresses uh, a desire to run the corporation as a social elemocenary institution to the detriment of the interest of the shareholders, the interest of the shareholders will prevail (laughs) or When you have reached a point in the corporate acquisition process in which the board of directors has determined that the the corporation will no longer have an existence, and now the question is, should we elevate the interest of the shareholders in the price that they will get for their stock over any corporate interest? because there is no corporate interest left less, less, left to have the interest of the shareholder will prevail right so those are the, the those are the what what strine calls the confession cases like like ford or on the other hand revlon cases in which there's nothing left yet nothing left of the corporation's reason to exist except to pay out to the shareholders in those two cases you can articulate a rule that says that the shareholder's interest prevails over another interest. My position is that that is not a general rule of law. The general rule of law where you don't have facts that essentially get you closer to the trolley problem is the business judgment rule, which is we, the courts, are not going to interfere in your judgment.
0: Maybe you could say a little something about the business judgment rule, how it works and wha- how you think it modifies or maybe even in some respects stands in for the more kind of theoretically abstract shareholder wealth maximization principle?
1: Well, my, actually, my position in, in the paper is even a little stronger than that. M- my view is that the business judgment rule is the overall governing rule and I think my 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 um, my one liner in the abstract is that it's it subsumes all other principles, uh, including but not limited to the shareholder wealth maximization principle that purport to be rules of law. Um, the business judgment rule is a judge made doctrine um, you know primarily made in Delaware, but I think basically in all you know fifty two Uh, U.S. jurisdictions that says basically this. Courts don't run corporations. Courts recognize, courts recognize that um, uh, corporate managers can make decisions that are good decisions, but ultimately wrong. And that courts are particularly uh, 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 uncapable or incapable of second-guessing biz- most business decisions and that unless basically four different um, uh, circumstances appear, courts will not second-guess those decisions and um the, the first two are, um, is there a, confl- a conflict of interest? So um, if it appears that the decision that the corporation ma- is making uh, or that the directors are making is not disinterested, um, or if it appears that um, the director or the corporation um, has an interest or a stake in the matter, you will no longer have that as a corporation or as a director, that presumption under the business judgment rule that your decision won't be second-guessed. So that's that's technically under the, du- the, the duty of loyalty. The other um, is under the duty of care, which is, um, have you made a rational decision um, or approached it rationally? And have you spent enough time looking at it? And so that's the duty of care or the duty of competence. But if you have made a decision within a business that is disinterested, that is um, not conflicted on account of a stake uh, in the action, that has been made rationally with due care, in the making of the decision, the business judge rule said the business judgment rule says there is a presumption that your decision was in the best interest of the corporation, and we will not interfere in it. And even uh, Chief Justice Strine calls that rule, and I can't remember the exact the exact words, the most radical statement in the in the corporate law. To the the effect that courts will not involve themselves in the ordinary business decision making of the corporation. And my position vis a vis the shareholder wealth maximization rule is again, the business judgment rule subsumes, God knows, every decision, almost every decision that a corporation makes. Short of those, short of those in which there is a conflict of interest, in which it's obvious that the directors didn't do their work, and in this particular instance, that there is no interest out there to weigh, other than the shareholder interest, right, which clearly under the facts of this particular case right? Dodge versus Ford Motor or Revlon has to prevail. Otherwise, it's the business judgment rule and the presumption under the law that what you did as a board is in the best interest of the corporation.
0: So in light of that, how would you re-articulate the shareholder wealth maximization theory to correspond to how the business judgment rule says corporations are Practically, economically, and legally, actually governed.
1: I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of a smart aleck, um, and and tell you that um, I'm not sure it needs to be rearticulated. That that the that that the current phrase um, that I that I would use for its current articulation, or at least as Professor Bainbridge uses it, it's a nothing burger. I I, I guess I would articulate it as this: while in the long run. Corporate officers and directors cannot ignore the interest of the shareholders as the ultimate owners of the residual surplus of the corporation. They have wide discretion to undertake commitments to other constituencies of the corporation in furtherance of that end.
0: Mm, I like it. Well, so Jeff, in closing, I was wondering if we kind of, if we could kind of bring it back to the beginning of the conversation. So the business roundtable, in its own way, is uh, a, also a business organization. Um, why do you think the business roundtable? had this kind of shareholder wealth maximization theory statement in the first place, why do you think they changed it? And how do you think that decision on the part of that organization fits into your description of how these principles actually play out in practice?
1: An, an interest, an interesting question. I mean, if you read uh, Steve Bainbridge's article, he certainly got his own speculations about why um, why they did it, and some of them are cynical, and and some of those cynical reasons I might even agree with, like they were terrified that Elizabeth Warren would be the president, and they were trying to cover their backsides um, with a more stakeholder oriented um, set of principles. I, Having been on the inside of the C-suite and the inside of the board room, there is no question that return to the shareholders is significantly important. Um, For for those of us, um, the the substantial portion of whose compensation uh, was baked in either in stock or stock options or some form of equity. Returning to the shareholders and seeing the stock price rise was critically important. Um, And I would say that um, historically, and certainly during the period of time that the original statement of principles was drafted, that focus on the corporation as ultimately a means of returning value to the shareholders was unquestioned. And I'm not sure that's changed. Um, I think the main thing was the word primary. And um, the fact that the word primary is sort of a poke in the eye to everybody else. Um, And therefore, and gives the impression, if I can, if I can uh, use an example from, I don't know, 20 or 25 years ago, um, uh, the famous CEO Al Dunlop, um, who ran uh, Sunbeam Oster and was famous for being, I hope I can use this on your podcast, um, a complete asshole to every constituency other than his shareholders. I mean, he was famous for that. He also ended up, I think, um, uh, I I don't recall if he actually went to jail or not. Um, His career ended in some amount of scandal um, at some beam Oster. Oster. Um, uh, But um, I, I think to some extent that, you know, that kind of attitude was at least more common or at least less criticized 25 or 30 years ago, and so what you had was this statement of principles that included something that went along those lines, and sort of stuck it in the eye of everybody else that, on a day-to-day basis, a CEO has to keep happy, employees, the community, regulators, um, customers, uh, suppliers, and. So if you read what they did, they weren't blowing off the shareholders. They were just saying something like, and I think I'm probably pretty accurate in this, while our shareholders are critically important, so are other constituencies. Um, and my own sense of the world is that, uh, and indeed, that's part of the empirical work that, that I do in the article, that was true before the statement got amended, and it's true now. If you read annual reports, CEO letters from before the statement was amended, you will see all sorts of commitments by all sorts of CEOs to constituencies other than the shareholders. And afterwards, in the COVID crisis, you don't see a lot of CEOs going out to their shareholders and saying, our main concern in light of the pandemic is to make sure that shareholder value continues to be increased. No, what you see them say is our first and highest priority is the health and safety of our employees and our customers. So I think that, I think, again, the statement was for whatever reasons, put out probably for political reasons, for PR reasons, um, but nothing really changed. Mm -hmm. And that's been my position.
0: Well, Jeff, thanks so much. I mean, I really enjoyed reading the paper. It was great talking to you about it. And uh, I really encourage people to check it out because I think it's quite provocative and a really deep reflection on how corporate governance actually works in the real world.
1: Brian, thank you so much again. <laughs>
2: Toastmasters, gentlemen, you too, politicians. The Democrats are the the middle-of-the-road party. The Republicans are the the straddle-of-the-road party. So I hereby nominate Mr. Henry Ford, for president, and christen the party the the all-over-the-road party. In the first place, it's too bad he is the competent. That is the only thing that'll beat him. Mr. Ford's a good friend of mine, and years ago, he overlooked the suggestion that would have made him immortal. It was when he went over to stop the war. I wanted him to take the girls we had in the folly and let them wear the same costumes they wore in the show and march them down between the trenches, believe me, the boys that have been out before Christmas. He has made more money than any man in the world by paying the highest wages. Yet, he don't even manufacture necessities. Neither would you call it a luxury and just... Kinda of comes under the heading uh knickknacks. I was at his home last year and happened to ask him that in case of uh, stiff opposition, just how cheap he could sell his car. He said, Why, well, by controlling the selling of the parts, I I could give the cars away. He said, Why those uh, things will shake off enough bolts in a year to pay for themselves. And the second year, that's just pure profit. People think Dr. Cooey was the originator of auto suggestions, but Mr. Ford is. He originated all those suggestions when he made the synopsis of a car. He has just recently lowered the price, $50. That's done to discourage thievery. He He's the first man that ever took a joke and made it practical. So let's let him take this country. Maybe he can repeat. He should make a good political race if he carries two-thirds of this country now. There's no reason why there shouldn't be a board in the White House or everywhere else. He's the only man that could make Congress earn their salary. He would start a bill through and give each one something to tack onto it. When it come out, it would be ready to use. He is the only man that when Congress started stalling could lift up the hood and see what is the matter with it. Some are against him because he don't know history. What we need in there is a man that can make history, not recite it. Now, if Mr. Ford will just take another one of my suggestions, he can be elected. If he will just make one speech and say, Voters, if I am elected, I will change the front on them.